All right, let's take our Bibles, Romans chapter 2. We will be in verses 14 through 16. And uh, as you're turning there, just a, a popcorn survey. How many of you have done any Christmas shopping so far at all this year? Really? Virginia's got it together, Lee. They've got it together. How many of you have not even thought about Christmas gifts yet? All right, all right. So our free spirits, that's good. All right, for those of you that do Santa Claus, there's, there's a clause in one of the songs, and uh, it has to do with this when you're speaking to children. Be good for, help me out, for, for goodness sakes. It may be another version, Paul, heavens, I don't know. But, but I've heard the one, uh, be good for goodness sake. And have you ever thought, have you ever thought, what makes something good and something bad? What, what makes something evil and something holy? What makes something morally wrong and something completely morally jacked up, regardless of culture, regardless of individual preference? Be good for goodness sake. We're in a series on the existence of God. The first week we looked at the prospect of if God does not exist, what options are we left with? We're left with options such as try to find fulfillment and purpose in life by family or through family, but then we learn that if there is no God, there's no possibility of life after death. That means that when death happens that your friends and your family, your children, moms, dads, grandparents will forever, eternally, forever, forever, forever be ripped apart from us never to be reunited again. In other words, beyond the grave, there is no hope. And even for the ones who say, Jeff, I don't want to live my life trying to find fulfillment and just clubbing and getting whatever I can get, going home with random people just because I I don't care. I'm just trying to find something like sexual fulfillment. I just can't get no satisfaction, to quote Jagger. That's a philosophy. Don't act like you've never heard that song. It's a philosophy that comes out of the 60s, right? The sexual revolution that says, if it feels good, do it. Find somebody who makes you happy and stick with them. If they stop making you happy or if they gain weight or if they lose their job, just go on to something else. And and there's this idea out there that says that we can find happiness and joy and, and lasting fulfillment from being able to fulfill our sexual desires. But a lot of people today are finding that that's not actually true. See, I've been down that road. Some say, well, it's all about experiences. Some say, man, I just, I just want to have a good time. I want to get high. I want to get drunk. I just want to kind of stay medicated so I don't have to deal with all of the stuff that makes me want to go absolutely crazy. But some of us have seen the end of that road, and then it, it, it ends in death and destruction, loss of physical health. Some say, well, I wanna, what I would rather do is I would rather just try to work really, really hard, study really hard, and get, the, get, get a job, get connections, so that I'll have stuff, so that I'll be able to kind of hedge my bets, so that I'll be able to know personally top surgeons. That way, if I ever get cancer, I'll have a better chance because I'm able to pay for that, right? I'm able to do, I'm able to do everything organic, in order to hedge my bets to have a better life and minimize pain and suffering. But a lot of us have seen that, that living for that, number one, you can't ever achieve it. And secondly, living for stuff it doesn't fulfill. 
And then others say, well, I'm just gonna live a life of, of honor. I'm gonna try to serve my country. I don't care about God or about the scripture or about Jesus Christ. I'm gonna live a life of honor and dignity and service. But without God, what do those things really mean at all? And so we learned in the first week that if God does not exist, then what you're left with is an absolutely absurd, meaningless universe. Even if you find stuff that makes you happy, if you're actually a rational person and you're not guilty of having brain liposuction, you're enjoying it for the moment, but you're thinking, this is so good, I love these people so much, this job gives me so much fulfillment, I can't wait to get another degree to put it on my wall, and it just fills me like, I did that, and it's not a pride, arrogant thing, you're like, I just love work, I love my family, but you can't be a rational person and truly, ultimately enjoy that, knowing that one day all of that's gonna be shredded, vaporized and no hope of it ever really amounting to anything except for just a moment in time, a happy thought. If God does not exist, that's what we're left with. So then we looked at last week, okay, if that's the case, if God does not exist, then do we even have, now let's, it's floaty time. How many of y'all got Oreos after last week? Remember if you made it all the way through your smart cookie, right? This is another one. If God does not exist, then do we even have a reason to think that he doesn't exist? And the thought was that if God doesn't exist, then everything that exists, you and I are brains. Pluto, whether it's a planet or not, it kind of goes back and forth, right? Everything that we have, the materials, the, mole the molecules that hold this stand together, everything that we have came as a result of absolute, complete randomness. Like, like more random than the middle school discussions over lunch. Like random. Like chaos theory. It just happened. Just stuff got together and it exploded. Where did the stuff come from? Nobody knows. But it was just there. I'm like, bro, I don't have the faith to believe that. But if God doesn't exist, then our minds are the result of random, blind mutations and natural selection. So really, if our minds or our brains come from randomness, do we even have the rational ability to trust our brains? Dude. Right? So if God does exist, then we can't even really, if we're being rational about it, say that I can trust my mind to formulate an argument that leads me to trust in my rational faculties to lead me to conclude that God actually exists. So again, if God does not exist, you don't have a reason to think that he does not exist because you're presupposing that your reason and your brain can actually work properly built upon absolute chaos and randomness, all right? So that's where we parked the van down by the river last week. So all of that was prolegomena. All of that was to set up the stage to start talking about what is the actual evidence for or against the existence of God. Today we're gonna talk about conscience and God and morality, good and evil, right and wrong. Next week we're gonna talk about DNA, we're gonna talk about the design that comes from the fine tuning of the universe. The week after that, we're gonna talk about the question that some of you may have from this talk today, who made God? 
Right, because Christians say that you've got your option that the universe either popped into existence or God created it. And atheists may push back to say, well, who created God? We're gonna look at that in two weeks, but I wanna give you a thought that even Aristotle, well over 2,000 years ago, understood that you have to have a point of beginning. You cannot have an infinite regress of events. Meaning, in the real world, mathematically, rationally, in philosophy, if you're a good philosopher, you will realize you go to Google and type in infinite regress and it's a logical fallacy. So for people who say, well, who made God? Well, the Christian doctrine is that God always has existed and it's crazy how that dovetails with ancient Greek philosophy that Aristotle said, well, I think everybody believes that the universe has always been here, but there still has to be a point of beginning. So he believed that there was this unmoved mover who we may call God, but he still didn't know how to rationalize that with Greek thought that the universe has always been here. Interesting, right? What we know today is that infinite regress and infinite regression of events is a logical fallacy. So stick with us for a few more weeks. We ready? All right. Uh, Let's go to Romans chapter 2, beginning there in verse number 14. The Bible says, for when Gentiles, now Gentiles are people who are not Jewish. In this context, a Gentile was a person who had not been exposed to the teachings of the Bible. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, by nature, do what the law requires They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And we'll look at this passage in depth in just a few moments, but here's here's the question for us today. Is it possible to be good without God? A lot of people in our culture would respond yes. In fact, there's a Pew Research poll done um, in March of last year, and the title of the poll was, Worldwide, Many See Belief in God as Essential to Morality. Richer Nations Are the Exception. So here's the question. You throw this out. Do you have to have God in order to be good? A lot of people understand that question, like in the survey, do you have to believe in God in order to be a moral person? An outwardly moral person, and let's define that. By good today, we're going to kind of look at a different angle. A lot of times in church, when we use the word good, we're talking about, you know, you can't be good enough to earn your way into heaven, right? We use good in a salvific sense, but today we're going to look at good from the angle of being an outwardly moral person, a person who doesn't engage in drive-bys, a person who takes care of their family and opens the door for senior citizens, all right? So here's the question. It's not, do you have to believe in God in order to be good? But rather, the question is, Is anyone able to be good if God doesn't exist? We tracking? Again, we're not saying that you have to believe in God in order to be a good, moral, outwardly moral person. But the question is, is if God does not exist, then do we have any idea on what goodness would actually be? 
So let's take a look at Romans chapter two, and here's just some evidence of the conscience and objective morality in human behavior. Look at verses 14 and 15. What kind of jumps out is that those who don't have a Bible, those who've never heard the gospel, those who have never read the law of Moses, don't have a Bible, but they still have their conscience. In other words, we intuitively know the difference between right and wrong. Look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. What this means is that God has given us the book of nature and the book of scripture. Meaning we can look at nature and we don't even need the Bible to conclude that things such as rape are wrong. Right? You study world cultures, things like, by and large, you know, murder, things like that, that even cultures who have embraced that know deep down that it's wrong. Um, for those of you who have read uh, about Gates of Splendor and Jim Elliott uh, back in the 1950s going down to South America, trying to bring the gospel to these people who were literally headhunters to a certain degree, and Jim Elliott was killed by those Aka Indians, and his wife went back. And the Lord used her to bring that whole tribe, for the most part, to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, president of the school that I graduated, Southwestern Seminary, he said he was giving a talk at this conference years ago. And the two guys who led the attack to kill Jim Elliott and his other friends, they had been saved. They were there in the U.S. speaking through a translator. And this was so profound. They said, even though we had never heard of the Bible, I mean, this is literally in the middle of the rainforest tribes. Even though we had never heard of Jesus or the gospel and our entire culture was founded upon killing, deep down, we still knew that it was wrong. Isn't this interesting that the Bible says that people who don't even have the Bible still have their conscience? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, we know that men find themselves under a moral law which they did not make and cannot quite forget that when they try and which... They ought to know that they should obey. C.S. Lewis says that it doesn't matter what we do, we can go to the ends of the earth and we still have something called the conscience that follows us. And also there in that passage, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, we see that those who don't have a Bible, they still have the moral law of God written on their hearts. In other words, our consciences accuse or excuse us. It means that regardless of where a person is born, they've got the internal witness of God. It simply means this. We know what we should do. We know we should respect our parents. We know should we, we should be patient with our spouses. We know that we shouldn't lash out in physical or, or emotional anger. We know what we should do. Come on. But we don't always do it. If we could be really real, a lot of times we could say that we don't do what we should most of the time. And there's the reality of guilt. Have you ever thought about this, that even in secular cultures, people are trying to deal with this thing of guilt? If morality simply comes from human culture, then we should be able to conquer guilt pretty easily. There's a professor of psychiatry at the medical school of the University of Genoa, and he says this. I thought this was so profound. He says, the sense of guilt is always lying in ambush. Think of those of you who enjoy action shoot 'em up movies, all right? 
You realize that one of the reasons why we watch those movies and we kind of look in awe at that person who's taking life after life after life after life with like it's not a problem, like I'm swatting, I'm swatting flies, I'm taking down people, is because in a sense, from the biblical record, we have been made in the image of God. And even in justifiable self-defense, there is something huge about taking the life of another person. And we watch these movies and we see how some of these killers try to escape this burdened conscience. It seems like they can be happy in every area of life, but the conscience outside of killing can be anything. The conscience that is saturated with regret can ruin an otherwise happy life. Have you seen that? We have people, they, they, we say, well, they have everything that a person could ever, ever want, but they don't have a clear, clean conscience. It's because the Bible says that even if a person doesn't have the knowledge of special revelation, they still have the conscience that God has given them. Even though in our 21st century America, we've got all sorts of distractions. I enjoy football. I enjoy hunting. But here's the thing. In our culture, we've got so many of these things that can take over our lives, and it's almost like it distracts us from the reality of our guilt and our past. And we don't like to have quiet time or when there is the radio or Pandora that's turned down low or the TV's off because it means that we actually have to think about our past. And if we've lived long at all, most of us have things in our past and the conscience gnaws at us. It's kind of like for those of you who've seen The Matrix, Morpheus says to Neo, you felt it your entire life that there is something wrong in the world. The Bible says that people who don't even have the Bible know that there's something wrong with the world. So here's, here's where we're going to be this morning. Here's the argument. And this is the moral argument for God's existence. And by the way, for those of you who have questions or you want to go do more research on our church Facebook page, uh, the notes, they're embarrassingly long, um, are on there. It's got this stuff and more because we can only get to a certain font to where people can't read it on the worship guide. So we've got a lot of resources if you want to go check that out um, and download that. But here's the moral argument for God's existence. Number one, if God does not exist then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Number two, objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, number three, God exists. And let's talk about this first one. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. A moral value would be like something's worth, something that's right or wrong. A duty would be something that you're obliged to do. For example, if we leave here this morning and we're walking across the street, we see a young child teetering into the street. We don't know who the kid is. We have no idea, but we have a, I think we could agree on that probably, that we have a moral duty to reach out and Restrain that child if we see traffic coming. So here's the question. Most people today, even atheists, will say, yes, there is moral values, objective moral values. But where do they come from? Here's an option. Moral values and duties come from cultural, uh, cultural foundation. And this is, called, this is called cultural moral Relativism. It means that right and wrong are simply dependent upon the cultures that we come from. It means that um, things like murder, uh, rape, child molestation are simply cultural variants. It doesn't mean that those things are actually wrong. It means they're kind of out of style. It'd be kind of like, you know, wearing a, 
I don't know, like bright neon parachute pants with a tap-out, cut-off t-shirt with a hat turned sideways that says, sup. Like, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. Now, hipsters may may disagree, but it may not be totally um, in fashion and in style. So here's the question. If God actually does not exist, then what's the difference between humans and animals? Thought about that before? If God does not exist, there's no soul, no spirit, then we're simply a higher form of animal. So really, if God doesn't exist, there is no ultimate objective right and wrong, then what we see on the animal planet to where Mr. Lion is just going to town on zebra, just, I mean, destroying, there's really no moral difference between what we see on that and then on Sons of Anarchy. For those of you who watch that spiritual show. There's a a leading atheist, Michael Ruse, and in his book called God is Dead, Long Live Morality, he said, quote, you know that morality is an illusion put in place by your genes to make you a social cooperator. Here's the atheist argument. They say it makes it wrong or right dependent upon whether it contributes to the survival of the human species. So therefore, things like murder, if you murder people, it's probably not contributing to the survivability of the species. Same things like like rape and stealing and so forth. But here's, here's the question. Is survivability the same thing as morality? Absolutely not. We could say if God exists, then ultimately, does it really matter if we survive or not? Because ultimately, we're all going to die and it's not going to matter at all. C.S. Lewis says you can hardly imagine a bit of matter giving instruction. So it's almost like if God doesn't exist, what the atheist has to do is find molecules, because that's all there is. There's no soul, no spirit, no God, no eternality. you got to just find molecules and then moralize them. Like you've, you've got to find molecules that people are made of and so forth and say I've got to attach morality, but morality doesn't have anything to do with molecules and molecules don't have anything to do with morality. Molecules are just there. There's no standard. So for those who say, it's very popular for people my age, um, I'm, I'm very, very young, 35, um, that culture determines truth. Here's what you have to come to grips with if culture determines right and wrong. Number one, what if, World War II buffs, what if the Nazis won World War II? Normandy, D-Day, stopped dead in its tracks. He allowed the panzers loose. They pushed them back into the Atlantic. Rommel won the battle in North Africa. They beat, they beat the Russians. 2015, Nazis control everything. The government, the media, the education, the communication. And we've all been brainwashed into believing that the Holocaust was not only okay, but it was morally right. Would it still be right? Because if the world culture is all together and the world culture teaches something that's obviously morally wrong, if you're a moral relativist, you have to say, well, if culture determines truth, then we'd have to say that the Holocaust was not really wrong. When the British went into India, there was a a practice called suti. It means, ladies, that if your husband died, then you would be placed alive on his funeral pyre and you would be burned alive with your dead husband. That was a custom. 
If you're a cultural relativist, you'll have to say that that's their truth and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But by the way, guys, that would give our wives an incentive to keep us healthy. <laughs> that was bad. Number three, an example of this, if, if, if morality and good and, ra- and good and evil, wrong and right come from culture, then you have to look at history like the Assyrians. It's a very interesting study on the Assyrians that they were the first what you could call full-scale terrorist nation. That they would ta- capture people from these cities. They were the first ones, by the way, to really use siege warfare. And they would capture them. They would skin them alive. That's the reason why Jonah didn't want to go preach to Nineveh because he didn't want them to get saved. He's like, God, if you're going to destroy it, I'll just keep grace over here and let judgment and wrath fall on those people. You'd have to say that what the Assyrians are doing was okay. The ISIS beheadings, if wrong and right are culturally determined, then you can't have an argument against that. Child molestation. You'll have to say that if there is a culture such as the Canaanite culture that God told the Israelites to remove, that embraced full scale, and we have children's church for this purpose, full scale bestiality, so that they don't hear this stuff and you have to explain things when they're like four. Whole-scale culture embracing bestiality, get this as an act of worship. If culture determines truth and morality, you'll have to say that there's nothing objectively wrong about that. And by the way, with uh, God being removed as the foundation of our culture, there's an article uh, in the New York Times by Margot Kaplan, who's an assistant professor at the Rutgers School of Law, called, quote, pedophilia a disorder not a crime a lot of people said this is not coming down the pipe but it's already here that if God is removed then personal responsibility is removed sin is simply something that can be explained by molecules there is no ultimate ultimate right and wrong everything is a disorder and as Christians we need to we need to study we need to think But in our culture, if you notice, everything from a mass shooting down to a person who habitually commits crimes, the first place we go is disorder. But if you're an atheist, go with me on this. A disorder implies disorder from order. So if God does not exist, then we even do even have grounding to call things disorders. But the way it's applied in our culture is a disorder removes personal responsibility as opposed to looking at a mass shooting and saying, yes, there are issues that play into that. But at the end of the day, the shooter is the one who acted out of wickedness and evil in the shooter's heart. That it's their fault because they pulled the trigger and not society's. So what we're seeing in our culture is to, I guess we could say, de-sinize sinful actions. And that's finally, if, if morality and good and right, wrong, are determined by culture, then really what Martin Luther King did was wrong in the sense of saying everyone's taxed the same, but there's no access to the same um, benefits. He stood against a culture that said, just because you're black, you're going to be discriminated against. But that's what the culture believed, the majority culture at that time. So if culture determines truth, then MLK, a letter from a Birmingham jail, that's wrong. You see, so if you're an atheist and you, and you go to moral relativism to say culture or individuals determine truth, then you really have to say all of these things would be morally okay. 
You see, there's a difference between what atheists may say and what atheists may actually do. You see, moral relativism, you can't live based on that principle. You cannot live based on the principle of everything simply okay based upon culture. If a person says that, that wrong and right are dependent upon a person's preferences, go see if they have a smartphone, pick it up, spike it like somebody's just scored a touchdown. See how moral relativistic they are. I guarantee you they'll quickly turn into a moral objectivist to say, you jerk. I love y'all. We can communicate. You can't do that. Whoa. It's just kind of like on, what is it, uh, the great movie Star Wars where it says that only Sith believe in absolutes, but wait. Was that not an absolute statement? You see, Moral relativism, whether it's cultural or individual, breaks down extremely, extremely quickly. Then some people say, okay, now Jeff, I have an objection. If morality comes from God, then could God have, I mean, why, why is this right? Could God have just simply said murder is wrong just as easily as murder is right? Well, that's a misunderstanding, and for those of you who want to go online and research this, this is the Euthyphro dilemma, but that's a misunderstanding of the nature of God. Murder is not wrong because God just said, you know what? I'm God. No one can rival my power. I can choose whatever I want to choose. So I'm going to say murder is a moral evil instead of a moral value and a duty. That's not the way that it works. In fact, God's nature is from where his commands come from. And there are certain things that the Bible says that God cannot do. Hebrews 6.18, God cannot lie. Now, hold on. You say, Jeff, you just said that there are things that God cannot do. Do you realize how awesome that is that God cannot lie? Instead of restricting God's power, that speaks ever more to God's awesome power. It's like saying this guy is so good at math. I mean, the, the, the rims and the lenses on his glasses are as thick as a telescope that would seek into the great unknown. Like this guy is an uber super nerd. He's so good at math, he can't get anything wrong. Some of y'all are like, why didn't I find that guy in school to sit next to him during that math class? Like if he's so good he can't mess up, it's not saying he has a lack, it's saying that he has virtue, he has ability. Same thing with basketball. If someone's so good, way better than Michael Jordan, ever could be they're so good they cannot miss a free throw it's just it's just money put it in the bank it's not saying that they have a lack because they can't miss it's saying that they're even awesomer so the bible's saying that god didn't just give his commands randomly just because he could but his commands issue from who he really is because god is good his commands are good you see then there are other objections that say, well, Jeff, couldn't it have been that there was just something out there good that God recognized and then God said that is good, but what is good outside of God? All you're left with is molecules, right? And molecules are not moral. You see, morality is grounded in the nature of who God really is. It's a matter of character. It means, that, it means that God's commands come from his essence. So if moral relativism doesn't give an explanation on wrong and right, good and evil, and if the best that the atheist can say is, well, good and evil are determined by what helps species survive, 
then what you're left with is an ultimate moral lawgiver. Therefore, God exists. And if God exists, here's the cool part. If God exists, we have an ultimate standard of goodness. The foundation is the nature of God. It's who he is. And not only that, if God exists and the Bible's true, then God is not only the foundation, the definition of all morality and goodness, but God has given his son to show us what that actually looks like. Come on. It means that if God exists and the scripture is true, then salvation, Jesus, the cross, the empty grave, that shows us the illustration, the ultimate example of what goodness really is. And the beautiful thing about that is that when we look at the cross and we look at the empty tomb, it is God who gets the glory and we are the ones who get the joy because we come to know him through faith in Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal said this, He said, the Christian religion teaches two truths. One, that there is a God whom men are capable of knowing and that there is an element of corruption in men that renders them unworthy of God. Knowledge of God without knowledge of man's wretchedness begets pride. And knowledge of man's wretchedness without knowledge of God begets despair. But knowledge of Jesus Christ furnishes man knowledge of both simultaneously. You see, when we talk about goodness and morality, we look to Jesus and see that is as good as it gets and it's the best that it ever could be. But when we look at Jesus, it's almost sometimes like we see in the mirror, man, I'm not Jesus. I mean, I am definitely, definitely not who I should be and where I should be. But it's the knowledge of our wretchedness and the knowledge of the perfection and the greatness of God that leads us to salvation. Paul Hobie says this, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. See, the issue of the moral argument for God's existence, brothers and sisters, it's not just a rational argument, but it should be a call for world missions. It should be a call to say we can, we can understand that God is there, but we know that God is not just there in the heavens, but he has come in the person of his son, and he's given us a command to go into all the world and take the gospel to every creature, to teach him about Jesus. And when they believe in Jesus, to baptize them. Wasn't it cool last week? Good job, Kelly. Right, being baptized in the name of Jesus and to teach them all things that he has commanded. You see, when we look at the moral argument for God's existence, we know this, and I know this. I know what I should do, but I don't always do it. We look at Jesus, who's the apex of that argument, and we say Jesus is perfection incarnate. Jesus knew the good, but he always did the good. And the beautiful part of how this gets practical is that if I become a follower of Jesus Christ, he enables me to do what I've always wanted to do. Deep down, we have this desire, even though we can't do it, to be what we should be, to love God, to love people in the proper way. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us and gives us the ability to do what we could never do outside of ourselves. That's where the moral argument for God is not just a theological abstraction, but it's a real, it's a reality because God is real and he wants to indwell us, he wants to lead us, he wants to be our Lord and Savior. So that's where we're gonna end. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We're gonna ask our worship team to come and lead us. And for those that...
have questions. You say, Jeff, I, I'm, I'm finding my mind and my heart being opened to the possibility of these ideas. I, I really do feel that before I didn't have a desire for God, but I, I'm, I'm interested. Maybe that your, your response to the Lord this morning is to come back next week. Come back the next few weeks and just say, just pray to the Lord throughout the week. Say, God, would you open my, not only my intellect, but would you open my will and my heart and my desires, my deepest affections, that if you are really, really there, would you somehow reveal yourself to me? We're not saying try to put God into a box. We're not trying to say uh, to test God, but we're saying that if, you're, if you feel yourself curiously attuned to what we've been talking about, then why don't you just ask the Lord, say, God, if you're there, would you show me that you're real?